Holy Spirit one guiding men. I think kind of we've done heavy lifting already in the past, you know, 61 chapters of Isaiah. And now we're just kind of enjoying it. And this is really the fruit of, uh, of the whole book and kind of the, the cap, the, and the cherry on the top of the ice cream. So you'll see it's very enjoyable. It's very nice. It's very rewarding. And I almost like want myself to just kind of set aside and let the text speak for itself. So a lot of times we'll be just kind of reading the text together and then just enjoying it maybe with a few comments here or there or more just of an organizational thing rather than anything else. Um, chapter, if I can get it to work. There we go. Um, the, the final chapters really talk about um, the, the church, the salvation that God has prepared for his people, and, um, and it's along those lines. So we'll start off with chapter 62, verse 1. Um, and it really gives us a very nice feel for what God's heart is like. So it says, for Zion, hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes before forth as brightness and her salvation as the lamp that burns so a lot of times we wonder what's god really feeling towards us how is he uh how is his what's his will for us how is what's god doing for us and as his people is he is he caring for us we feel like gosh you know god is distant i don't feel connected i i want to hear his voice i want to see him i want to touch him i want to feel him and this is kind of the answer to this question for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. Who's speaking here? We, th this is Christ speaking. He's saying, for the, for the sake of uh, Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem sits. So for the sake of Jerusalem, for the sake of Zion, I will not hold my peace. And for us, it means for the church. So the church is New Jerusalem. We are, we are his people. So for our sake, I will not hold my peace. Um, and one of the nice meditations is that just like Boaz did not hold his peace when Ruth came to him and asked him to do for her the right of redemption, she's a Gentile, right? So for us, we are Gentiles, whatever we are, American, Chinese, Egyptian, Greek, we are not of the Jewish descent. So what Boaz did, Boaz did for Ruth, Christ has does for us he won't sit, sit still until he redeems us until our salvation is complete uh, so he will do whatever he is gonna, uh, needs to take for boaz he went to the elders he spoke to the elders he spoke to um uh, the next of kin that would have you know, had the to do the right of redemption the same thing for christ he will do whatever it takes to uh for us to be he will not hold his peace until her righteousness goes forth. Her righteousness is our righteousness. Until our until our salvation, until our glorification goes forth as brightness. The Holy Spirit who is in us doesn't rest until we are fully illumined, fully glorified. So there is no level where we can say we are fully brightened. The Holy Spirit always yearns to make us brighter. 
for her salvation as a lamp that burns. So this, this, uh, this is the image that we have. The next part is um, talking about us or Jesus giving us a new name. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Uh, if you remember, like during the exile, when people were uh, kicked out of Jerusalem and they were going through the desert and they were marched out and their kings had their eyes plucked out and their sons killed in front of them. This was a very bad image. And, and when you look at Israel like this, you can say, well, God has forsaken them. They are desolate. Their land is no longer inhabited. So no longer will these terms apply to you, to us. And we could, like, away from the church, away from Christ, we are the same way. We are forsaken. We are desolate. But you shall be called Hevzabah. What's Hevzabah? Hevzabah is a, a, a Jewish name, which literally means my delight is in her. So you're not, no longer forsaken. You're no longer desolate, but you're Hef, Hefzabah. And Hefzabah means I, I, will, I will now glorify you and will delight in you. I will be pleased with you. And your land, Beulah. Beulah is another Jewish name, which literally means married. We see the theme often in the scripture where... Um, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So Christ, God is going to marry us through his son, Jesus, and we are his, his bride. For the Lord delights in you. And this new name is actually uh, in the chapter a lot and in this whole section, 62 to 66. In this verse, verse, it comes back in 12, in verse 12. So I put them together just so we have the theme of the new name. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And uh, later on, um, I don't think you can see it all, but uh, let me see, get rid of some of these things. Oops. You shall leave your name as a, uh, a curse. So the old name that you had, uh, you shall leave that one. That was an old accursed uh, or cursed name. Desolate, uh, forsaken, forgotten. Uh, those, things, those names you will leave. So there's a lot here about this, this new name. Okay. So not only will we be a new name, but... Uh, God through Isaiah says, you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem, diadem just means crown, a royal crown in the hand of your God. Interesting here, the choice of words. Why do you think it says in the hands of the, of the Lord? Where does the crown usually go? The crown usually goes on the head, right? And he says, you are the crown of glory. So I would expect the crown to go on the head. So either the head of Christ or the head of God or, you know, we're, so the crown here is us, right? So we are by a new name and we're the crown of glory. But why in the hand of the Lord? 
the fathers meditate on this and they say, because God needs no more glory. So you put a, a crown on the head of a king to give him glory because he's, he's a king. So this uh, like, adds to his glory and dignity. But can you add to the glory of the Lord? No way. So it doesn't go on his head. Can you add to the glory of Christ? No way. So he doesn't go on the... Uh, and this tradition is actually in the church. If you notice, if you go to some of the monasteries in Egypt, or um, I'm not sure about St. Anthony Monastery, but the, the places where they have oil lamps in front of the icons, it comes in front of the icon of Christ, and they don't put an oil lamp. Why? You can't add light to light. You can't add glory to God. And so this why is in the hand of, of God. We are a crown, but he holds us in his hand. See, Sirius says something very beautiful. Now, this compares both each holy soul, so this crown, this is each holy soul, soul and the collective church that is the company of the saints to a garland tied together from many colors. So there's not just one kind of color. There's a rose, there's a carnation, there's this, a lily, and all the kinds of colors. So it's not just one nation. This crown of the Lord is going to gather all the nations. That is the company of the saints. Um, many flowers or, uh, to a royal diadem, shining with Indian jewels, different jewels. And I think Indian jewels must be a special thing, but Indian jewels. And with a variety of beautiful forms. For many are the noble characteristics of the saints. And there is not one type of distinction, but many and various. This crown has many flowers. This crown has many jewels. They are various in color, shape, brightness, and beauty. Interpretation, it comes from Eusebius. And he says, for the crown is really all those of Christ, the holy martyrs. So we said these are the uh, saints. Uh, uh, was it St. Uh, Cyril? St. Cyril said they are the saints. Here, uh, Eusebius steps it up just a notch. And he says, they are the martyrs who the fathers handpicked to serve the crown, saints, martyrs, you know, not much difference. But here is important for us in that it, we're not necessarily asked to sh shed blood as martyrs, but this martyrdom for us could be a bloodless martyrdom where we sacrifice our own comfort and our own needs for the, the, the better of, uh, for others, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, those in need. This is the martyrdom that UCBS is talking about in this crown. Okay. And your land shall be married. For as the young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. A little bit confusing. So we, we understand the married part, right? We, uh, the church is the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. We're going to be married. Your land shall be married. He's talking about the church. No problem. But then he likens it to a virgin. I think this is okay too. For as a young man marries a virgin, so a young man goes and searches and looks and finds the most fairest virgin, the most beautiful, the most virtuous, and he marries her. Sounds reasonable. The Christ, uh, the, the Christ does the same. His church has to be a virgin. She cannot have had relations with other gods. She could not have worshipped Baal. She could not have worshipped uh, Astareth. She could not have worshipped, uh, you know, any idol or even going after the idolatry of the world. This is not the virginity that Christ is looking for. So this is true. The church is the virgin that Christ loves and sought after. So shall your sons marry you. 
Okay, so what are the sons here and who are they marrying exactly? And this did not cause a stumbling pro uh, block for the fathers. They said, the church is a virgin, but we have, we, know, we had, we have virgins that have children. Well, one, <laughs> which is St. Mary. We have a virgin that gave birth and she has children. So the church has children and they marry her in that it's, it's, a, it's, it's more of a, um, it's, a, it's not literal, but it's more symbolic that they will uh, love her. They will serve her. They will be attached to her. They will care for her as a mother and they will just be united to her as a, a son would to be a mother. Okay. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So seeing all this, Christ will rejoice because the bride, the, the, the bride is a virgin and her sons love her and marry her. That's us. We love her and we marry her. So shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall not hold their peace day or night. You, you, uh, you who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. And keep give him no rest till he establish until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Okay, couple of things here. Who are the watchmen? Different uh, uh, fathers had different ideas, but all along the same lines of saying maybe the watchmen are the priests. Somebody said that the watchmen are the priests. They watch over the church. They take care of the, the church. So the walls of Jerusalem are like the church and the gates of the church, the needs of the church. Some people, some people said they're the angels. So God sets the angels over every soul for sure, like a guardian angel, but over his church to protect them. When, we, when the priest dismisses uh, the angel of the sacrifice, this is a, an angel that is guarding the sacrifice the whole time the sacrifice is on the altar. So there are angels watching over the church. They shall never hold. Uh, and then the, finally, the last type of watchmen are the servants. So the priests, the angels, and the, 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 the servants. The servants are the laborers, the watchmen, the workers in the church. What is their job? According to this verse, and they shall never hold their peace day or night. Another interpretation is that they shall never be silent day or night. How are they not silent? Some will say they have to preach the word of God. This would be good. Some would say they have to not stop praying day or night. There is a chance to have a liturgy. Let us pray. If there is Vespers, a commemoration of a saint, whatever, Tazbiha, there is uh, praying at home, prayer warriors, whatever you have in terms of uh, uh, being, not being silent, this is good. And you, you who make mention of the Lord. So in prayer, we make mention of the Lord. Do not keep silent. Oh, there it is right there. And give him no rest till he establishes an all. This is interesting. What is, and give him no rest till he establishes. And give him no rest until he establishes. I think it's worthy of a pause. Because it ties the two together. We don't keep silent. And our lack of silence Give him no rest. God doesn't want to rest. He wants to answer our prayers. He wants to hear us. And if we decrease our labor in serving him, preaching him, praying to him, he will rest. There's a danger here. And then he will not establish us. us. Okay? 
and by establishing us, he, is, he makes the church a praise in the earth. Okay. Um, so the watchman is the uh, honest servant. Abuna Tadros Malti says this, his honest ministers alert with the spirit of persistent prayers besides their loving shepherd, shepherding work. Um, so they, they have prayers and they're doing this, their uh, shepherding work. And the examples of this is St. Paul who says, therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease, three years, I didn't stop to warn everybody night and day with tears, warning, preaching, alerting, correcting. Simon, yes, is in the old. I'm sorry, Samuel, in the Old Testament, but also had the spirit of this minister, this watchman. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord. He considered it sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. If I cease to pray for you, I have sinned against the Lord. I take this for myself. But I will teach you the good and the right way. So, this is basically the, the highlights of the first chapter. We didn't read every verse. We skipped a couple, uh, but only a couple. Um, and then now we're going into 63. Any comments, questions, thoughts about 61? Uh, sorry, 62, verse 62, the one we just finished. Okay. So 63, um, this is, it's divided into a, two parts. Uh, the very first verses, talks about the victorious warrior, which is a, a beautiful imagery. And then from seven on to the end of the chapter, and even the chapter after it, 64, is a prayer. Uh, and this part sets up the prayer. And Isaiah prays because he sees this vision. So the second part is Isaiah's prayer. But the first part is uh, of chapter 63 is why he got on his knees and prayed. So this is very crucial. Why did, what caused Isaiah to fall on his knees and to pray? And this is what we have here. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garment from Basra? So who is this? He, he sees an image. He sees somebody coming out of Edom, uh, coming out of uh, Basra with dyed garments. It doesn't tell us the color yet, but it's some sort of dyed garment. This one who is glorious in his apparel. He's very glorious. He's mighty. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. He's traveling as one who has strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now he's speaking. This warrior that's coming out, who's glorious in apparel and great in strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He's able to save. This person who's coming out of Edom is able to save. Why Edom? Why is he, what's he doing there? Why? Is your apparel red? Now, Isaiah is, is meditating. Uh, why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads in the wine press? So now it was dyed. We said it was dyed. And now we know it's red with the, and uh, red with like the wine press, as if somebody just came out with grapes. You know, if, if you get wine on your tonia, it's going to look like blood. I have trodden the wine press alone. And alone here is significant. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. Gives us an image of the cross. Christ is alone on the cross. He has, he has trodden the winepress. It means he has conquered death. And, and, and from the people, no one was. His disciples fled. Only a few of his disciples. I have trodden them in my anger. 
this who is this we'll find out in a little bit i have trodden them them is is, is significant and trample them in my fury there's anger of the lord there's because things are not right their blood is sprinkled upon my garments so now he confirms this is from the battle i have i have the blood sprinkled on my garments and i have, and i have stained my all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come okay so now we're getting a full picture this one coming out of edom is the almighty lord and this is an image of his day of vengeance for whom for us for we are his redeemed the year of my redeemed has come the time for the redemption is here i looked but there was no one to help and i wondered and there was no one Let's see if i can uh, minimize this And there was no one to uphold, to uphold me. And there, there, my own arm brought salvation to me. Whose arm brought salvation to him? His own arm brought salvation to him. He rose himself. He did not need one to raise him up. He was alone and he raised himself up. Of course, he's never truly alone because he is with the Father and the Son, but true, alone in terms of no angels, no archangels, no human, no prophet can take his place. And he alone has to do this. Why Edom? Edom is the enemy of Israel. During the captivity of Babylon, uh, where they carried um, uh, Judah away and carried Jerusalem away, they joined with the Babylonians in destroying Jerusalem. You know, so, oh, my enemy is going down. Let me kick some dirt in his face. Let me push him down further. Let me destroy his city more. This was Edom. So they aligned themselves fully with the enemy of Israel. And David saw this in the Psalms and saw it before and described it for us in the Psalm. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. Why? The days of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was destroyed, they said what? Raz it, raz it to its very foundation. Bring it down to nothing. David saw this. How? Obadiah, also one of the minor prophets, records this. For your violence against your brother Jacob. So Edom is the, uh, the descendants of Esau. So for your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that, that carried captives his force, for foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. Even you were as one of them. So very clear here what uh, Edom did. So it symbolizes all the enemies of God's people. Uh, and so in order to, for Christ to save us, he has to go to the enemy and defeat the enemy. So is it just people? Is it just Edomites? No. Edomite, Edom, it literally means dust or bloodthirsty. Who, is, who comes from the dust or who crawls on his belly on the dust? The serpent and the Satan, the serpent who tricked Eve, who crawls on his dust and his belly. bloodthirsty. He wants to devour man. He is jealous of man. So it refers to the devil. So when he says, I went and defeated them, he defeated the evil one. He defeated the devil. So this is the image of this victorious warrior coming. Garments like one who treads in the wine press. This is, uh, is like the clothes that they put him 
uh, put on him before the cross, the purple that they put on him. It's dyed with the purple, like the blood. His clothes bloodied in, also by his multiple wounds. The, I, in battle alone, all this is the crucified Lord. But the beauty of it is he's crucified, but the, the Bible says glorious in his apparel. So St. Gregory of Nazianzus sees this and is marveled. He says he's suffering, he's wounded, he may be, he's bleeding, but he's glorious. And this caused him pause. And he says, there's nothing more sweet and beautiful. He has the passion, and he, but he's glorified with his deity, with his lordship, with his divinity. So this is the image of the victorious warrior. Isaiah sees this image and then falls down and prays, seeing the bridegroom, sorry, the bride rede redeemed uh, with blood by the bridegroom, what can the prophet do? How would he be ever give back? And, and the first part of the prayer that starts from verse 7, it says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord. I will pray and I remember. And that's why the church for us always remembers and we always thank him. We thank you for everything, in everything, and for everything. So that we, for saving us, for redeeming us. And the same thing Isaiah says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord always. He remembers the mercy of the Lord. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. So our affliction, the affliction of the people, all those afflictions became his afflictions. And, in the, and the angel of his presence saved him. See, he himself saved himself. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, as the people of old, and us before, if we are, are, are away from God. So he turned against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. So he would remove his grace from them, or his hand from them for a little bit, and they would fall, and they would, and they would stumble. And then he would remember the days of old, where they served him and worshipped him. And then he would go in and save them. Same for us. Some, sometimes we fall, we pull back from the Lord, but then he, as soon as we come to him, he, he is willing to take us. It can, um, the next is the prayer of pen, pen, uh, penitence or repentance. So um, the first part is kind of remembering God's mercy and his loving kindness. That's 7 to 14. And then from 63, uh, uh, 15, chapter 63, verse 15, to the very end of ch chapter 64, this is about us repenting or the people of Israel repenting. And I think this is also good for us to pause and meditate upon. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. This is how the sinner feels. So sometimes when we are separated from God, we feel like God is way up there. And we're way down here, and there's a big schism or uh, uh, space between us. But this is really not the way it is, because God is very close and near. But sin, when it enters, it makes us feel that God is above. So Isaiah felt this, because his people were in sin, and he was repenting for them. So he felt like they were, that, that God was far away. So he's saying, look, look down from heaven, come, see. Look uh, uh, from your habitation. Your habitation is glory and it's true, but it's not that far. 
And then he says, where are your zeal? And where are your mercies towards me? Are they diminished? We feel that sometimes. We feel like, where is, where is your love for me, Lord? Where is your zeal for me? Is your mercy restrained? Oh, that you would rent the heavens. But, and this again, there's a, there's a divide. And people thought that the, the, above them was a dark cloud that kept God from seeing them and being close to them. So he's saying, open the heavens, open that veil. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. I love this because it gives us a good feeling towards the Lord and ourselves. We, we are all unclean things. No matter how clean we are, we're still not perfected yet. And we can't do anything with our own righteousness. It's only through your righteousness. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. And we hear now for the first time, our Father. So remember, he says, how do we pray? You say, our Father. And we pray it all the time. But Isaiah is using it. This is, this is gospel stuff. Um, so we start seeing it in this relationship towards the end of the book of Isaiah. Um, this ties very nicely to the prayer of penitence. Uh, at the time of St. Basil the Great, there was a monk that had fallen away. It doesn't say exactly what his sin was or how he fell away, but out of his care for him, St. Basil sent him a letter. And this is an excerpt of that letter. And I, I, it's, it echoes some of what Isaiah is, is saying and the repentance. St. Basil says, I grieve for you. He's telling the, for the monk, I grieve for you. For who among the clergy would not cry when he hears this? When they hear of your sin, who would not cry? And who among the ministers of the altar would not knock his chest for you? And who among the laity whose conscience would not be troubled? Even the laity, their conscience would be troubled in hearing of your fall. You have destroyed all at the same time, have let all down. Very hard to hear. Remember the good shepherd. Ah, so now he's near. Who follows and cares for you. Please do not hesitate to come to me for any worldly consideration. Come to me for anything. I stick to and cry for my deceased because of the plundering of the daughters of my people. There you are. Everyone is ready to welcome you. Everyone shares your strife. Do not retreat. It is time for salvation. It is time for mending. And this is the spirit of these last parts of the book of Isaiah. It's time. Be of good cheer and do not despair. The church is not a law to judge a sinner without mercy, but has a law of mercy. There is a law, but it's the law of mercy that overrides punishment and hopes for correction. The doors are not yet closed. The bridegroom is hearing. The bridegroom is hearing. Don't despair. When we're fallen, we don't stay fallen. We get up. And um, I don't know if he, um, he said it yet. He says, do not retreat. Oh, yeah, we said it earlier. Do not retreat. Sometimes we retreat and we get depressed and we, and we, uh, we become hopeless. But St. Basil is telling this monk, do not do that. Come back. Don't pull into yourself. Come to Christ. Have compassion on yourself 
So it requires us to have compassion on ourselves, have mercy on ourselves, and all of us, because we're suffering because of your suffering, and all of us in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the part uh, that was the prayer of Isaiah. Now we start the home stretch on the very last two chapters. Any comments or thoughts, or uh, you can put them in the chat so far for um, the past three chapters, 62, 63, 64, we covered. Good, good, okay. Um, 65. I just picked up a few excerpts so that I think we can maybe um, just get the flavor of the chapter or pick up the important things. The, the very first thing is verse one, and it says, I, have, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So the last few chapters of Isaiah is looking into the future, is looking in the time of Christ. And he's seeing that a nation that's not Israel is coming to the Lord. They did not seek him. They did not seek after them, but he came to them. And this is mentioned very well in Romans. And also the Magi from the East, East those are the ones who are, uh, they, they were called. They said, come, come see the, the Christ who is born. So Christ, in, uh, or Isaiah saw Christ calling the Gentile nations and not just those um, from the um, people of Israel. But not to forget the remnants. So the Gentiles are called, the Greeks, the Egyptians, all the nations. But also the remnant of, of Israel are loved by him. And they're cared for him. And this is in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 65. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it. So there's a vine. And the vine is beaten up, and is old, and is dried up. But they find this one cluster. And one says, don't destroy it. For a blessing is in it. The same way Christ sees the whole nation of Israel beaten down, deserted, desolate, but he finds hope in the cluster. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. So for the sake of Christ, Christ God says, I will not destroy them all, because there is hope for a few of them. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob. So there's no doubt now. It's talking about Israel. It's talking about Jacob. And from Judah, an heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. So they have a place in the kingdom of the Lord. This next section, verse 11 to 16, shows a very deep contrast, though, between the Gentile nations and the remnants and the non-believer. Behold, my servant shall eat, those who follow Christ will be blessed. They will eat. This is a language that the Israelites understand. They understood that when God blesses them, they're going to have plenty. Land flowing of milk and honey. They understand this material blessing. Of course, we don't take this as a material blessing, 
We take it as a spiritual blessing and we will eat of his body and drink of his blood and we shall be live forever. My servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. It's very clear, very sad. Those who are not of his people, those who are uh, not of the remnant, those are not of the Gentiles who will, be accept, uh, who, who will come, they will be hungry. They will be starving for something of God. Behold, my servant shall drink and you shall be thirsty. We'll drink his drink of him and be thirsty of the, and not be thirsty we'll have the living water but the others they'll be thirsty behold my servant shall rejoice but you shall be ashamed behold my servant shall sing for joy of heart but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit Chapter 65, this section, this is a sample from it, talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Here, behold, I created a new heavens and a new earth. And there's a couple of ways to interpret this. What is the new heaven and what is the new earth? Um, some meditation is that this new heaven is our own soul. And the new earth is the, our new body. We receive in baptism an enlightened soul, a spiritualized soul. And we need, receive a cleansed body. This is the, the temporary fulfillment of this verse. What is the complete fulfillment? It is that new heaven and the new earth in the second coming of Christ that's mentioned in Revelations. For I saw a new heaven and new earth, all things that were uh, uh, else were gone away. The old earth and the new all heaven was gone away. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping. And this gives you an idea of this new heaven and this new earth, this new place, these new souls, these new people. What are they going to be like? And joy will be in them. Joy, I will joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. My people will not have this uh, um, sorrow in their heart. No, will have any crying. crying and, they will, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. Imagine that before we even say our prayer, God is hearing and, and, he, uh, and he's happy to fulfill. So in the baptized nature, in this uh, new nature, new soul and new body that we receive, the wolf becomes more lamb-like. The violent and the beastly nature is abolished. And this is what St. Paul says to the Corinthians there. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New life filled with spiritual joy and heavenly rejoicing. These are the gifts of, uh, this is the gift of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit, so, uh, which is partially fulfilled now. And then we will uh, be completely filled at the end, as uh, St. John says. Last section uh, we're going to talk about is the very last chapter. And, um, it talks about the formal worship and how the Israelites corrupted the formal worship. It says, heaven is, uh, is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hands have made and all these things exist. So it means basically, no matter what we build, no matter what we put together, stone upon stone, building upon building it's all god's footstool and his creation we can't offer him anything 
earthly or material that he doesn't already own or does he already control or possess or have. And this is a, a, a pitfall that the Israelites fall into. And God forbid we fall into this too, because God is not looking for the worship uh, uh, of a building, but he is looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. And this we can lose sight of. But so what kind of worship do you want, Lord? Isaiah answers. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah here is wrapping up his epistle, his 66 chapters, and he focuses on this point. This is significant. It's like your last will and testament. He's saying, God's people, my people, please don't think that you can impress me with temples. Don't think you can impress me with monuments. Don't think you can impress me with things. This is one thing I look for him or for those who are of poor and contrite spirit. It doesn't mean we can't build a building. It doesn't mean we can't have a, a place to worship that's ours. But it means that means nothing without this. A poor, poor and a contrite spirit, a contrite heart. Who trembles at my word. Who stand in fear. Who stand in awe. Who don't think that they're all that. Jesus to the Samaritan woman, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship. He's looking for those kind of people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. St. Augustine says, do you like to become a place of God? He's asking, do you like? Yes, I would like. How? Be of a poor and contrite spirit and tremble at God's word. He's repeating Isaiah's words. Let our hearts tremble as God looks at us. He will then dwell in us. St. Irenaeus says an animal sacrifice. He mentions an animal sacrifice because later Isaiah mentions that God abhors the animal sacrifice and detests those things. An animal sacrifice does not sanctify man. What does it do? It points to Christ who is the, the true sacrifice. And God's, God is in no need of a sacrifice. It is the pure conscience of him who offers it that sanctifies the sacrifice. This is important here. It's the pure conscience of him who offers that sanctifies the sacrifice. God is not pleased with the sacrifice by itself, but the pure conscience. So we have to always be in this pure conscience. This will move God to accept it. Holy. St. Justin Martyr says, indeed, God accepted the temple. So it's not, it's not like God didn't accept it. God accepted the temple. And he called it the temple of Jerusalem as his house, not, a, not out of need, not because he needs it, but in order that when you look at it, you present yourself to God. So the place of God, the place of worship, his house, should induce me to present my soul to him. It should induce others to present the soul to him. This is the purpose. Finally, uh, just a quick rundown of what we covered. Um, there's a new Jerusalem. This is the church, and it's giving it a new name, no longer desolate, no longer barren, it, and it's, a, it's, it's given a symbol of a crown. Our Lord is the mighty warrior who brought us victory. Seeing this, 
we lift our hearts in prayer and repentance. Salvation is open to the Gentiles, but a remnant of Israel will be saved, and a great blessing awaits those who believe. The true worshiper must worship in spirit and truth, and glory be to God forever. Amen.